So this Advent, we've been exploring a theme. The theme is home. Uh, we've kind of tried to capture the, the ideas, the images, the sounds, the smells of home by putting a nice big bright red front door up. Uh, but I think inevitably, when we think about Christmas, when we think about everything associated with this holiday, we have memories from our homes of the past. We make memories uh, in our current homes in the present. We have hopes for what that means in the future. And the big idea has been that all of the good that we experience in our homes, God wants to bring to completion when he gives us our permanent spiritual home. And all of the brokenness that we've maybe experienced in our homes, God wants to redeem that in the perfect community, his kingdom, which shall come someday. And this morning we want to talk about the idea that God wants to give us rest. It's kind of a nice word, isn't it? It's kind of like, that would be nice if I could get a little more of that. I I imagine all of us have some images, some stories that come to mind. Uh, As I was thinking about it, I I think rest, it's a a complex word. It can show up in a lot of different ways. Uh, There's the physical aspect. I remember uh, in high school, I went to Honduras on a mission trip with my church. And a big part of the project was we were going to pour concrete floors in people's homes. But as you might not be surprised to find out, the water source was quite a far distance away. Now, many, many people in the world today are familiar with having to walk and carry water in order to use it. Well, my like ninth, 10th grade self thought this was, you know, uh, this was something new to me. And so it was assigned to me the task of getting a five gallon bucket walking whatever it was, maybe a half mile up the road. It wasn't crazy far, but it was far enough. Filling the bucket, putting it on my shoulder, walking back, pouring it into the concrete mixer, and doing that over and over and over again for two days. So uh, on the end of the second day, I was riding the bus with our whole team back to the, the guest house, whatever the place that we were staying. And I sat down on the bus, and I sat down next to the guy that was the concrete floor project manager, and his name, or his nickname, but it's what we all all called him, his name was, I kid you not, Brick. And Brick, his name really matched his body type, and it really matched his personality. I mean, I was just, he was nice, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't super talkative, He was very good at mixing and pouring concrete. So I I sit down on the bus. I'm just, as one of the more tired moments that I remember in my life. And then suddenly, I jolt awake. And I don't remember falling asleep, but I just remember jolting awake. And I kind of wipe my face a little bit. And I look and see Brick's shoulder, which... I mean, it was, it kind of, you know, there was a lot of, he was a big guy, and it was just soaking wet from how much I had drooled all over his shoulder, falling asleep on the bus. But when I think about rest, sometimes I think about how hard work and exhaustion can create, even on a bumpy bus sleeping on the shoulder of a guy named named Brick, uh, hard work can sometimes create some of the sweetest physical moments of Rest, where your body just falls into a sleep and it's deep and restorative. 
But it's not just physical, right? We don't just need physical rest. Um, I remember when I was a graduate student, and at the end of my program, there were two big things I had to do. I had to uh, complete comprehensive exams, which was a lot, and then I had to write and pass, uh, uh, you know, write my thesis and get that passed. And there was this um, process where each chapter of the thesis, I had to turn it in to my thesis advisor to get feedback on it. Now, it's really easy. Turn in a good chapter, and the feedback process is nice and easy. It just goes nice and smooth, right? But let's just say, let's just imagine for a second that maybe, you would never assume this to be true of me, I'm sure, but maybe I turn in a terrible chapter. Like, not just not good enough, but like really, really, really bad. And then I have to enter into this moment of, or this season of psychological turmoil in which I receive let's just call it the truth about what I have just put out into the world and then go through the process of tearing apart everything I've done and making it better. That was not a season of necessarily physical exhaustion, but it was a season of psychological rigor and tiredness. And I remember once the thesis was done and I'd passed and I took comprehensive exams, me and all the friends that I was studying with, we just went out for a big meal afterwards and we were all just like, it's done. We can now have a season of rest. All the teachers are in the room right now are like, amen. I, I hope you're grading. I hope, the, anyway, maybe I shouldn't have brought that up. Maybe, maybe it's too close. Maybe it's good. Uh, but then, of course, there's also the fact that both physical, uh, psychological, we also know that rest is something that can be relational. We live in a world where our relationships sometimes are hard work. Our relationships can be tiring I had a moment um, just over Thanksgiving where me and my family all went up to the mountains, and I remember we ordered pizza, nothing necessarily all that special, but it was very good pizza, and there was this one night where all of us were sitting around the table, and we've got four kids, ages three to 11, everybody sitting around the table is its own small miracle, we're all sitting around the table, and it was just, we were talking, and we were laughing, and we were eating, and we were together, And it's one of those moments of relationship where you just go, oh, when when my relationships are like this, it feels kind of like rest. Here's the big idea this morning. The gift of life, the hope that we hear in the good news that God is with us, that Jesus is born and then God has come to be with us is this. God wants to give you a home where you experience true, full rest. I wonder, what are some of the times in your life that you think you've experienced rest? What are some of the memories? What are some of the stories? What are some of the moments that come to mind when you remember what it really, truly, deeply feels like to get some rest? And as you think about uh, those moments in your life, I want to read to you um, some words that Jesus said in his life and in his teaching. And he said to his disciples that I think for all of us, are some really, really good news and give us all the more reason to celebrate the birth of Christ this Christmas. These are the words of Jesus. Uh, You can read them in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Anybody here willing to acknowledge that 
maybe in your life today or in this season, you're a little weary and burdened and you would be blessed to receive from God the rest he wants to give you. I love this passage uh, also in, as many of you are familiar with the uh, version of scripture Eugene Peterson wrote, the message. Um, I want to read the same passage again uh, in Eugene Peterson's version of it. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I'd love to pray one more time before we continue. God, help us learn from you what is meant by rest, by true rest, and Lord, how we can receive that gift from you this Christmas season, right in the midst of whatever it is that we're living in our lives today. May your words be our source and our strength. Amen. So here's the two questions I want to ask, and I think they're questions that are really, really worth asking. First of all, what is true rest? I mean, what does Jesus really mean? Because, yeah, I like taking a nap. Um, I like when I get some time off of work or when I don't have as much to do. That's nice. But is that really the extent? Because sometimes, while a nap is nice, I hope there might be more than this, just that. And then on top of that, if I can figure out what Jesus meant by true rest, how, how do I learn to take it? How do I actually get that? Maybe I'm a workaholic. Maybe I hold myself to too high of a standard. Maybe I never let myself slow down enough. How can I actually learn what it means to receive this gift that God says he wants to give to me? And as we've done, we're going to answer those questions in two parts. We're going to start by looking at the word rest as it shows up in the story of God's people, the Israelites, and their journey of entering into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. But like we've said all along, the story of Joshua is a starting point in Scripture, and what we see about rest in Joshua gets its completion and fulfillment in the work that Jesus has come to earth to do. But we're going to pair these together in in yet another new way this morning, which is that Joshua led God's people into the promised land, a physical place for a specific group of people meant to be a blessing to the earth. Jesus came to complete what was started in the promised land, namely to remake all of creation in its perfect form, in what we often call the new heavens and the new earth, or as Revelation calls it, the new Jerusalem. So we're going to look at a couple passages from Joshua and say, what does Joshua teach us about rest? And then we're going to jump to the end of scriptures. We're going to look at Revelation 21 and say, what do we see about the perfection of rest that Jesus wants to give us at the very end of the story? That's where we're going. I think we're going to have fun. I'm going to have fun. If you guys want to have fun with me, you're invited. Okay, here we go. Joshua, starting in chapter 21, verse 44. Um, after, uh, After they had conquered all the nations in the promised land, after they'd been battling for a long, long time, after they've had a pretty hard season of work, here's what 
We read. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Then we see the same theme echoed again in the very next chapter. This is Joshua 22, verse uh, 4. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest, as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. So Israel just spent a long season of hard, tiring, wearisome work doing battle with all sorts of different people. And finally, the war is over. The battle has been complete. There may be some skirmishes, but the message is now that you are in the promised land, you can finally have your rest. And rest in this context has a a pretty simple, straightforward definition. Rest is the cessation, the end, the finishing of conflict. Let me ask you a question. Um, Have you in your life experienced any conflict? with other people. I mean, I mean, maybe the better question would be how many people in your life right now are you currently experiencing conflict with? Here's my, here's my really brilliant um, observation. You're really going to be stunned um, by this observation. Conflict is the opposite of rest, right? I mean, when I think about the relationships, the people, the, the, the challenges, you know, and, and, and we know it can show up anywhere. It can show up at work. It can show up in our home. It can show up with friends. It can show up with immediate or extended family. When I think about situations of conflict, I, I think that might be the absolute least restful, most possible draining circumstance that I think of in life. Conflict is the opposite of rest. Uh, I've, I got a new running watch recently. And, you know, watches, they do all these, like, they're trying to get new gimmicks. Well, Garmin decided to put a new feature on their watch, and it's my stress index. So I now have on my wrist a measure of my stress. And I'm just like, Garmin, this is not a good feature. And then on top of that, they take the stress index, and they have a measure they call your battery. Not like the watch battery, like your energy battery. And so any moment of the day, I can look and I can see, and they're like, oh, when I woke up this morning, my battery was only 74% recharged. And I was like, what the heck? How am I waking up and I'm only at 74% already? I don't need reminders of the stress. Or the, now it's on my wrist, my wrist all the time. I'm going to take it off right now. But if the beginning point of Scripture's hope of the rest God wants to give is the cessation of conflict. Let me ask you this. Just take a second to imagine this. What would it be like to live life, to live with no conflict in your life? If we're looking at the trajectory of Scripture and Joshua is the starting point, but it's going to be, uh, you know, the landing point, the culmination is going to be something even better. Get this. The starting point is that God wants to give you the end of conflict in your life. That in and of itself just makes me go, ah, that gives me hope. I bet my stress points just went down a few bits, a few bit clicks just thinking about it. But of course, 
That's the beginning point. And we get an image of if God led Israel into the promised land long ago, what is the ultimate hope of the future promised land for which we all have the hope in the birth of Christ? So I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 to get what I think is the landing point of Scripture's uh, invitation to rest. Um, Before we read it, I want to just make three short notes because you may or may not know, but Revelation is just full of imagery. I mean, just line after line after line is thick with imagery, and so it helps to know in advance what some of the images are referring to. First of all, uh, in most cases in Revelation, including this one, the sea, you know, like body of water, the sea, big ocean, the sea is an image for evil. The sea is where evil happens, where, where evil resides, and so that's the image of the sea. Second, there's the image of the voice from the throne. That voice on the throne, that's the voice of God speaking to his people. And in this context, it, it's probably pretty safe to say this is the voice of Christ talking to his church. And then the third is there's the image of a wedding feast, of a bride and bridegroom being united at their wedding. And the wedding image actually throughout scripture is just what, what is meant to cause us to recall is the joy, the happiness, the celebration, the, 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 the goodness, the life that comes at a wedding. And the image of God's final vision for his people is an image of the best wedding you could possibly imagine, where God's people and God himself are united. Three images, hopefully that makes the scripture come to life all the more. Here's Revelation uh, 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. This, I submit, is the culmination. It's the ultimate hope. It's the the future vision of what God wants to give to all those who are his people. I want to make three quick observations about what I think is the fullness of rest that God wants for all of us. First image, it said, God, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. 
The first image of rest is that rest comes when we are with God. But that's a little confusing to hear sometimes because isn't Christmas the season where we celebrate that Christ was born and Christ is Emmanuel, which means God with us? Carl, isn't God already with us? Yes, yes, fair point. That's good. I'm glad you brought that up because we need to talk about that. Um, We know that God is with us. But I bet if we took a quick poll, we'd get a pretty much 100% agreement that even though we know God is with us, we often don't experience and we often struggle to believe moment by moment that it is true. Because this world is filled with all sorts of broken things that do not feel like or look like or seem like the presence of God with us. The Apostle Paul actually expressed this very challenge of how hard it can be to see God and understand God in this world. Here's how Paul described it in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part... Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. I mean, in a sense, he's saying the way we're able to see God is akin to maybe when I get out of the shower when it was really hot and the mirror is all fogged up. And yeah, I can see that there's something in this mirror, but it really doesn't have the clearest shape in the world. I can't quite make it out with much specifics or detail. It's just foggy and, or scratched up or hard to see. But the hope is that there will come a day when the way we see God's presence is crystal clear. So what is true rest? Here's my first thought. True rest comes from an unhindered relationship with God. The starting point of true rest is when the reality of God with us has been brought to its completion, the mirror has been cleaned, it's been polished to perfection, and there is nothing, absolutely nothing, standing between us and our Creator. Instead of a scratched up or foggy mirror, the image that came to my mind, one that I bet many of you have seen in person, or at least in a picture, is like when you're up in the mountains, and you just see this breathtaking, majestic mountain peak reflected perfectly off a glassy lake. True rest comes from an unhindered relationship with our Creator and our God. And it says that when that happens, the story continues, and the promise God makes is that He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. But hold on a second. Every tear? Because... I have this memory in ninth grade of going to biology class, and my seatmate, Stephen Candy, decided to tell some jokes before class started, and he was really funny. And the teacher came in, and I was trying to stop myself from laughing, but I couldn't stop myself from laughing, and he kept telling more jokes, and I kept laughing so hard that I was literally crying because I was laughing so hard, and I kind of hope that that kind of tears still exist in heaven because that's just really fun. And I don't think I laugh that hard often enough. I think I need to laugh that hard more often. I think of that as a kind of rest. So is that, are those tears going to be wiped away too? No, don't worry. I think we're going to laugh until we cry, even in heaven. I don't know. I can't guarantee it, but I think so. Why? Because it, it continues. Tears are, in fact, just an image to talk about what happens 
in the midst of pain. See, he's going to wipe away every tear. Why? Because there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. In a sense, I think this is the completion of what we saw in Joshua. If in Joshua, rest was the end of conflict, at the end, rest is the end of every cause for conflict or even every cause of pain itself. This is what we talked about last week when we said Christ has come to destroy the ultimate enemy, which is sin and death itself. And sin and death are the cause of every experience of pain we have in the world. And so just imagine this. Imagine suddenly sin and death have been conquered. The brokenness that we experience uh, physically, psychologically, emotionally, relationally, it's been completely wiped away. You know what that means? That means that suddenly now all of our relationships are characterized by a complete and utter destruction of conflict. All of our relationships are characterized by the same closeness that we experience with God. So the second image of true rest is that true rest comes in unhindered relationships with others. I mean, just, just do this again for a second. Think about, think about all the people you're going to see over the next week. Think about all the friends you're going to see. Think about the family members you're going to see. Um, think about all your colleagues at work. Think about the Skype calls you're going to make. My sister and family are still in New Zealand, so I, you know, we're going to video chat with them. Think about, think about all of the people you're going in, to interact with just in the next week. Imagine what, what it would be like if every single one of those relationships had absolutely no conflict, tension, brokenness, discord. And then imagine for a second, imagine what it would be like if all of our relationships were like that. And imagine what it would be like if all of our relationships were like that all the time. That would be true rest. Unhindered relationship with God. Unhindered relationships with others. And then we get this closing image in these six verses. Uh, We get kind of a final image that in some ways I wasn't sure how it fit with the others, but this is where this passage wraps up. The voice from the throne, God says to his people, To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Now, first glance, pretty obvious metaphor. We've all been tired, hot, worn out, thirsty before. Whether it's from carrying buckets of water or from summoning a peak in the mountains or from maybe just mowing our grass on a hot day. We know that when I'm hot and I'm sweaty and I'm tired, and I get a nice tall glass of water. And I love when you drink it and you know when you're drinking a glass of really cold water and you're hot and you can like feel it creep down inside of you, water is refreshing and it's life-giving. But there's a, there's a little context in there that caused me to pause because it says water without cost. Without cost. Now, I know that we pay a water bill on a regular basis, but as far as I can tell, in the grand scheme of things, The water bill is not a a, a giant volume, considering that this is something I need every day for my survival. 
it's, it's not that huge of a deal in my daily life. But as I was, and I'm, and I'm thankful for that. But it struck me, oh, that's right. For the first audience, and in fact, for a giant percentage, probably the majority of the world today, their water does not come clean, abundantly, easy, and for a low price. That's just not what most people experienced long ago or what most people today experience. And so I started reading about some of the um, international ministries that we at Centennial work with, and I read a story from the World Vision website, um, and I heard about a woman, her name is uh, Irene, and that's her daughter, uh, and they live in Liberia, and they're right next to a brand new water pump that was put in their village by World Vision. And here's why that's a big deal. Um, You know, you might know this, but um, lack of access to clean, reliable sources of water primarily hurts women around the world. And the reason it primarily hurts women is because they are the ones who are left at home as husbands go and try to get whatever employment and income they can. And they're the ones who have to, often with their small children, travel on average about six to seven kilometers each day, multiple times each day or each way in order to fetch water. And of course, when you're traveling that far and you're carrying water, Um, You are exposed not just to the physical strain of it, but you're also pretty vulnerable and exposed to all sorts of violence from other people. World Vision's calculations say that worldwide, women worldwide spend about 200 million hours fetching water. Women, just women, worldwide, 200 million hours fetching water every day. I think if the hope of God was water without cost, and I had spent my life every day traveling miles carrying water, that would be good news. But it turns out I don't think that's actually even the end of the power of this illustration. See, because here's Irene's story. Um, Before that well was built in the first picture, before that well was built, she had to travel unreasonably far to get water, which meant that on a regular basis, she didn't have enough water. Maybe she had a sick kid and had to travel to a hospital and couldn't collect water. Maybe the water that she collected wasn't enough for some unexpected chore in her home. And so Irene would often find herself looking at the day ahead and having to make a choice. She could give clean water to herself to keep herself safe and clean, or she could give the little clean water they have to her kid to keep her kid safe and clean, but she could not do both. For the other, she would have to drink from the stream in their village, which was most certainly going to make people sick because of how contaminated it was. For Irene... Water was often a choice of, am I going to keep myself safe and healthy? Or am I going to keep my kid safe and healthy? And not surprisingly, of course, the mother always makes the decision to keep her kid safe and healthy. But that means that in order for Irene to live her life, she constantly has to sacrifice her own fundamental health and safety in order to be able to provide for those she loves. And sometimes she's unable to do either. I cannot imagine the type of 
turmoil, brokenness, strain. I mean, what does that look like to have this ongoing relationship with yourself where every single day, maybe not, where on a regular basis, you're being torn apart with these brutal decisions you have to make? I think that, in a sense, this image of water without cost, an abundance of it, is an invitation to an unhindered relationship with ourselves, where we don't have to tear ourselves apart in order to make the decisions in the world around us. Why? Because in the ultimate kingdom, the water is free, and it's abundant. It's never contaminated. It only and always gives life. I think when Jesus says we can come to him and receive rest, he means we can receive an uninhibited relationship with God. With conflict eliminated, we can experience complete and perfect unhindered relationships with others. And because of that, we can finally live in the freedom of an unhindered relationship with ourselves. Jesus made the invitation. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This relationship with God, relationship with others, relationship with self, brought to their perfection. This is the hope of God with us that we celebrate in Christmas. Which means, as always, we have to ask ourselves, okay, okay, what is my move and what is your move going to be? So I just want to ask three questions. Questions that I believe the answers to which will help us lead that path towards Christ, and towards receiving the rest he gives us. First one, pretty foundational. Um, What in your life? What is hindering your relationship with God? This Advent, would you be willing to stop and think and say, is there anything in my life? Is there a lie I'm telling myself? Is there a broken habit, a self-destructive truth, some hateful action towards others? Is there anything in my life that, if I'm honest, that is hindering my relationship with God? Instead of drawing near to the God who wants to give me rest, I'm pushing that God away. Might we acknowledge anything in our lives that's hindering our relationship with God? And here's the good news. We know that everything we confess to God, no matter how small or large, he will respond with grace and forgiveness that brings us his peace. Second, what is hindering your relationships with others? If with confession and repentance we receive an abundance of grace from God, is there anything that, if we're honest, is breaking our relationships with others and we need to give to others what we have been given from God? The hope of restored relationships, even where it seems impossible. But we serve a God who came to be with us and who defeated death in his resurrection and can overcome any conflict. What's hindering your relationships? And finally, what's hindering your relationship with yourself? Man, just our own understanding, our thought processes about ourselves, the things we believe about ourselves can be so broken. Is there anything that you need to say to God? God, I want to give up this self-hatred, this lie, this destructive image I have of myself, and instead I want to receive from you the good news that you made me, and you love me, and you gave your life for me.
Imagine this again. A life in which your relationship with God is completely unhindered. All, unhindered. all guilt and all shame has been wiped away once and for all. And because of that, every relationship in your life has been brought to perfection. Conflict is, go- is gone. There is only joy. And with that, finally, you can live a life at peace with yourself. That image, that is the hope of Emmanuel, God with us. That is the hope we have in our celebration of the birth of Christ this Christmas. I stumbled across a story. I was, uh, well, I was, I was scrolling my Instagram feed. Full disclosure, I was scrolling my Instagram feed. And I came across a story that just stopped me in my tracks that I think is maybe the perfect landing place for this hope of God with us. Um, uh, it, it, uh, the, the person who put it on their feed tells it, and I found a couple primary sources about it, but tells it's a story first told by a Jewish rabbi. And this rabbi had a woman, um, either in his congregation or just in his, in his circle in life, and she had a severe brain injury. And this woman, because of her severe uh, brain injury, would often uh, just fall to the ground, kind of unable to stay standing. And the woman would talk about how, without fail, when she fell to the ground, people would rush and immediately try to help her up. And of course, she appreciated their desire to be generous. But she also noted that sometimes people would rush to help her up even before she was quite ready to get up yet. And so she's reflecting on why that is. Why do people rush so much and partly their generosity? But she said, you know, I wonder if sometimes people rush to help me up even before I'm ready because they're uncomfortable with an adult laying on the ground. And then she said, what I really want is just for somebody to get down on the ground with me. Would you pray with me? God, if we're honest, a lot of us would acknowledge that, that maybe right now, but certainly at times in our life, um, we feel like a little bit like we've just fallen on the ground. A lot of times life on earth feels like some hurt and some brokenness. And you tell us, God, that you have come to earth to be with us. Help us to hear and help us to celebrate that good news in all that we do this Christmas. God, if there's anything that we know is hindering our relationship with you, help us to come with confession and repentance and lay before you any hurts, any lies, any addictions, any brokenness, help us to lay that at your feet so that we might receive yet again from you the good news of your forgiveness. God, if there's anything that's hindering our relationship with others, where we're causing or stirring too much, stewing too much in the conflict of this world. Help us to learn to bring to others the same grace you have brought to us. 
And God, if there's anything that's broken about our relationships with ourselves, the lies we believe, the mean-spirited words we can speak, the ways we do damage even to ourselves, help us to extend as well your grace to ourselves. I'd like to invite everyone listening here and at home to just do a little exercise with me. With your eyes still closed, attending to God's presence in our midst, take a minute and think through all that you've got planned for the week ahead. Will you be at work with colleagues? Picture their names and faces. Will you be at home with family and friends? See their faces and their smiles in your mind's eye right now. Will you travel to others' homes? Think about the celebrations, the meals, the giving of gifts, the telling of stories, the sharing of laughter. And with all of that in your mind, God, we offer to you this week ahead. And as we prepare to celebrate you, the God who came down to be with us, help us to fully be with others every moment of every day the rest of this Christmas season. Amen.